A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe. Key battles. The Battle of Slaus, 1340. The first major battle of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Slaus, which is spelt S-L-U-Y-S, has been described as the greatest naval battle of the European Middle Ages. Although not widely known about today, this event is important because it created the opportunity for a later English invasion of France, and therefore the more well-known battles at Crecy, Poitiers and Agincourt, which I will cover later. The Hundred Years' War began officially in 1337, but for the first three years there were no major battles. By 1340, the rulers of both France and England were beginning to realise the limitations of the resources available to them. King Philip IV of France planned the major invasion of England in 1339, only to have his fleet dispersed by a storm and his Genoese crewmen mutiny. Edward III of England, meanwhile, nearly bankrupted himself in the first three years of campaigning and was facing increasing resistance at home to the increased taxes required for his overseas campaigns. Neither kingdom was able to afford anything like a professional navy nor possessed the level of expertise of shipping as could the great Italian city-states of the time. Both kings believed that naval warfare was best exercised with galleys, that is, oared vessels that were not dependent on wind for manoeuvre. At the Battle of Slaus, the subject of today's podcast, however, both sides had to rely on cogs, that is, merchant round ships propelled by sails rather than oars. The French were unfortunate that a revolution took place in Genoa at this crucial moment in time, as the new Genoese regime were ill-inclined to hire them galleys or crew. This left them with only 22 galleys, and 18 of those were burned in an earlier English raid. As for the English, the few galleys they possessed were required to defend their southern coast. King Edward tried hard to negotiate with Venice, a rival of Genoa, to hire some of their galleys, but with no success. King Philip, after losing his best ships, adopted a defensive strategy aimed to block English invaders from the Flemish coast, assembling a fleet of 213 ships in the so-called Great Army of the Sea. Edward only learnt of this on the 10th of June, a few days before he was due to set sail with his army to attack France. In defiance of the advice of some companions, Edward was unwilling to forego his plans for the year. Instead, a flurry of orders forced nearby ports to produce additional merchant ships. Edward managed to pull together a fleet of 120 to 160 vessels. Most of the crew were merchantmen, impressed into royal service and therefore probably less prepared for naval warfare than their French counterparts. On the other hand, the English ships carried a large number of soldiers. The fleet sailed for Flanders on the 20th of June. Four days later, the English arrived at the mouth of the Zwin estuary. 
The river mouth was then about three miles wide, although it has since silted up and is now used as farmland. The French navy was led by two admirals. Behuchet, a short, fat Norman, had been a civil servant before showing considerable ability as a leader of raids on the English coast. He did not get on personally with his colleague named Quire, who was an experienced sailor. Concerned that English ships might break through their rank, the French chained their ships to each other to form three long lines. The idea was to improve security by keeping their ships together, but the tactic ended up sacrificing mobility and so proved a costly error. Edward was in no hurry to attack, delaying until about 3pm, when the sun would no longer be in his men's eyes. In the meantime, the French vessels began to be blown off station and drifted eastwards in the current. Unable to manoeuvre due to being chained together, their lines were soon in disarray. The French realised their mistake and hastily ordered the ships unchained from each other, allowing them to edge back westwards and re-block the river mouth. But they were now badly organised and ill-prepared for the English attack when it happened. A medieval sea battle was much like a land battle. There was little manoeuvre or pursuit. When two navies came together, it was a collision followed by boarding and a desperate bloody fight at close quarters in which much the same tactics as those used on a battlefield were employed on the wooden decks of ships. The English fleet was formed into three lines for its approach with the largest ships in the front line, including that of King Edward. The boats of both sides had so-called fore and stern castles built on them, that is, platforms from where soldiers could shoot arrows or throw javelins and stones. Having wounded or killed enough of the enemy, they then attempted to attach themselves to one of the opposing ships with grappling irons, then try and board the ship. The great advantage that the English possessed was a large number of men-at-arms, and especially longbowmen, intended for the invasion. The French had mustered 500 professional crossbowmen, but they proved far less effective than the English longbowmen. English archers were more practised after honing their skills in Scotland. Not only were they more accurate than the French, but they could fire arrows far quicker than their enemy, up to a dozen a minute. In addition, English bowstrings affected by the damp could be replaced in a moment, unlike the more complicated mechanism of a crossbow. And then, as the afternoon progressed, the French were forced to fight with the sun in their eyes. The French put up as strong a defence as possible, and Edward III himself received a crossbow bolt through his thigh. But the combination of lack of firepower and their initial disarray proved the undoing of the French. So the first of their lines was destroyed very early. The tall ships in the English first line were then able to move on against the smaller, tightly clustered ships of the French middle line. The difference in height gave the English an even greater advantage. During the initial English assault, Edward's reluctant Flemish allies remained in their harbours, but when they saw how the battle was developing, they came out and proceeded to attack the French third line from the rear. The battle broke down into a series of skirmishes between individual boats. With sword, mace, short spear and bill, the English infantry captured ship after ship. Since the escape route was blocked, the French losses were devastating and they began to panic, 
Only two dozen galleys and barges escaped, the rest all captured by the English. Between 16,000 and 18,000 Frenchmen lost their lives, making it the most deadly naval battle of the Middle Ages. Losses were generally higher in naval battles than on open battlefields. In some ways they were typically more like the storming of a castle than field battles, and so more often marked by wholesale slaughter. It was unusual to give quarter to enemies when boarding a ship, and there was nowhere to stow prisoners. The only hope for crew members of a losing ship was either to be ransomed or take to the water, but at Slough's those who tried to swim away were bludgeoned to death by the Flemings on the shoreline. Of the two French admirals, Quiré was killed in the fighting, while Béhuchet was captured for ransom. But when Edward recognised him, he had him hanged on the mast of his own ship, in revenge for his earlier attacks on the English coastline. It was indeed a bloody and murderous battle, wrote the contemporary chronicler Jean Froissart. Almost the entire French fleet had been captured or destroyed, eliminating at a stroke not only the danger to English merchant ships in the Channel, but also Philip's ability to blockade his coastline. The result was that the Hundred Years' War would be fought on French, not English soil. The battle was also the first demonstration of the devastating effectiveness of the English longbow on the continent, but not the last. In the book Battles of the Medieval World, Phyllis J. Jest describes the Battle of Slaus as the largest military event of the whole Hundred Years' War, and England's greatest medieval victory. She argues that it has failed to capture the imagination in England because it was fought by the lower classes without the romanticism involved in defeating the leaders of European chivalry on the battlefield, such as occurred later at Cressy or Agincourt. Modern authors, she writes, in general have followed this medieval prejudice. With confidence sky-high, Edward moved on to the city of Tournai, near the site of the previous century's Battle of Bouvan. Meanwhile, Robert of Artois, with Flemish troops, bolstered by a small contingent of English archers, headed towards Saint-Omer. King Philip wisely avoided attempts to be drawn into battle, and the campaign was starting to become extremely costly for the English, without any significant strategic gains. Edward had the usual problems over money and had to once more appeal to Parliament for another grant. Public opinion, though supportive of the war, fiercely opposed yet more taxation. The depth of feeling was expressed with the contemporary Brute Chronicle. Quote, Wherefore you shall know the very truth, the inner love of the people was turned into hate, and the common prayers into cursing, for cause that the common people were strongly aggrieved. End quote. King Edward was furious at having his plans followed by restrictions on his finances. He replaced half his officials responsible for taxation and made more financial demands from his nobles. But when he then accused the Archbishop of Canterbury of treachery for deliberately withholding money, the king had overreached himself. In the face of intense resistance from Parliament, he was forced to back down. Edward enjoyed a stronger relationship with the leading men of his realm than did his predecessors, and so could extract significant funding for foreign campaigns, but there was a limit to how much he could acquire. Some money was grudgingly provided, 
but not enough to keep the armies in the field, nor to conduct a lengthy siege, and in mid-September, with the weather deteriorating and the less committed allies losing their enthusiasm, Edward accepted a truce, brokered by the Pope, to last until the summer of 1341. When the truce ended, the English lost even more of their momentum, when their German and low country allies started to defect for failure of payment for earlier services. The German Emperor Louis began negotiations with King Philip and withdrew his support from Edward. This obliged the English king to abandon his plans for a second campaign in Flanders, and hopes for his claim to the French throne were fast dwindling. Edward's fortunes were, however, revived at this crucial moment, when John III, Duke of Brittany, died childless. Brittany was a duchy in the northwest corner of France, coveted by both the English and French kings. Duke John was unwilling to cede his duchy to the most obvious successor, his half-brother, John de Montfort. Instead, he married his niece, Joanne, to Charles of Bra, a nephew of King Philip, as a gesture of friendship to the French royal house. Philip called an assembly in Paris which predictably decided the inheritance of Brittany in favour of Joanne, even though only a few years before the king had argued strenuously against inheritance through the female line for the French crown. John de Montfort, however, staked his claims as the rightful duke, leading to a 23-year-long conflict, which is known to history as the Breton War of Succession. In general, the leaning nobles supported the Blois faction, while the Breton-speaking gentry supported de Montfort, probably because they resented French encroachments on their independence. In addition, many of the merchants and those who lived near the ports, and so profited from trade with England, also threw in their lot with him. King Edward's alliance with John de Montfort provided him with a valuable military base, now that his position in the Low Countries was faltering. Moreover, it offered Edward another region where his claim to the French throne might be recognised. So in 1342 he ordered troops into the duchy for a campaign which, despite some setbacks, such as the death of Robert of Artois, was a helpful way to distract the French. From 1345 Edward held the upper hand, but the continuing state of war meant that Brittany was never totally or securely in his hands. Edward's first campaigns of the Hundred Years' War were waged in collaboration with others, the Emperor, the Flemings and the de Montforts. From 1345, however, that changed. He now acted purely on his own initiative, raising more English troops and attacking more directly. In the campaign of 1345 to 1360, Edward sought to maintain several fronts simultaneously, Gascony in the southwest, as well as Brittany and Flanders. The period is best known, however, for the battles of Cressy and Poitiers, and it is the former which I will move on to in the next episode. Many thanks for the several messages I've received since my return, and for several great iTunes reviews. One review said, This podcast does a superb job. I was pleased that it does not focus on the minutia of individual battles, but not sure if this will change as sources become more detailed in more modern eras. Well, the answer is no, the podcast will keep the same format and level of detail as we move into periods of history that would be more familiar with most listeners. I choose not to go into the minutiae of battle, not for lack of sources, but because that's not what I'm most interested in. 
are more interested in the grand sweep of European history and also why political and military leaders make the decisions they do and the consequences. Another comment, uh, this time on my blog, uh, was from a listener, John, who says, quote, Your podcast has transformed my life. It is a truly spectacular account of European history and has been a great way for me to put everything in context, and I hope to use that context to begin learning all I can about why Europe today is the way it is, end quote. Well, thanks, John, because that's exactly what I'm intending to do with the podcast and inspire people to find out more. For example, I could have said a lot more about the the history of Spain, but I hope that if you're interested in that particular subject, it would inspire you to to dig deeper and find out more. John also asked if I could say a few things about myself. Well, um, what can I say? I live in a small village near Oxford in England. I'm 44 years old. Um, I have a, a son who's three years old. My wife is Italian, and I've had an interest in European culture for a very long time. In fact, I spent most of my 20s and 30s living in different countries in Europe. I went to teach in Russia for two years, and then in Madrid, in Spain, for another two years. After that, I started working in IT projects in different parts of the world, so I spent, so I spent extensive periods of time in, uh, in the States, in Nashville, Tennessee, and then in uh, Zurich in Switzerland, then Oslo in Norway, and Ljubljana, which is the capital city of Slovenia. And all that was great, but now I've decided to settle down in a a nice English village in in Oxfordshire. Lastly, I'll say a couple of words about the upcoming battles in the next few weeks and months. Uh, In three weeks, there'll be the Battle of Cressy in 1346, and also then Poitiers, 1356, so both the Hundred Years' War. After that, I'll be moving to Eastern Europe, talking about a couple of interesting battles there, that of Kulikova in 1380 in Russia, and the Battle of Nicopolis, 1396, sometimes described as the Last Crusade. After that, I'll be moving back to France and England, and talking about the Battle of Agincourt, and then the end of the Hundred Years' War. In addition, I have recently released a three-part series on the site patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. When researching subjects to come, such as the Italian Renaissance, I realised there was a bit of a gap in the overall narrative around the Mediterranean in the 13th century. So I cover the highly impressive German Emperor Frederick II, his fight with the papacy, the invasion of southern Italy by a French prince, Charles of Anjou, and an uprising against his rule known as the Sicilian Vespers, a pivotal event of the period. Part 1 is available free, parts 2 and 3 available to all my patrons generous enough to pledge $3 or more a month. As always, I look forward to hearing your comments either on the Facebook page or the blog www.historyeurope.net or email me, carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net or Twitter at historyeurope.kb. So thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. I hope you found it interesting and informative. I wish you all the best, and until next time... Goodbye.